Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Insight. Uh, did you know that this podcast was called Insights? I didn't know that. You didn't know that? I didn't know that. Okay, well, but this now is... now I have insight. <laughs> you have lots of insight, and that's the reason why you're on this show. Thank you. You're one of our first guests on Insight. Really? Did you know that? No. Yeah. I feel honored. You should be. Yes, thank I you. I think this is a great thing. Um, anyways, I'm going to introduce our guest today. Uh, his name is Dr. Cole Hosenfeld from Apple Healthcare, and Dr. Cole... Kind of explain to us what you do and kind of where you come from. Gosh, we own um, Apple Healthcare Group, which is a group of multiple types of specialties. It's an integrative practice that has medical providers and chiropractors and physical therapists and podiatrists, massage therapists even, that we decided to bring, to go, bring together years ago in order to really bring out strength in collaboration, talking, so we get doctors actually talking to each other to figure out what is the best path to get patients doing better. Our focus is we're really a um, neuromuscular or musculoskeletal clinic, so we treat things from jaws to back, neck, all the way down to feet, knees, elbows, wrists, using a variety of therapies. How did that come about? How did that um, that mix come about? Did it come from you guys, you know, starting in chiropractic and you know, referring out a whole bunch of stuff, and then you decide, okay, who needs to be on our team? No, I think that's a great question. Well, we started, we're a family practice, and it started in 1986. And so we've been around for a long time. I've been in practice about 20 years. My focus is in sports medicine. That's kind of where I I go. And what we found is that we were able to get people better with therapies and chiropractic care. But there were certain times that they really needed outside interventions from our orthopedic buddies to neurosurgeons to functional medicine doctors. But what we found is when we would send patients out, sometimes they would get lost in translation. They would become a number in another clinic. And what we found there was that the patient didn't get a full spectrum treatment. So we, we decided to expand our practice probably 13 years ago in an effort to bring the strengths out of each profession and bring them into, together into one house. And, and we have three locations now. Is that is that kind of what they mean by continuity of care in a way or is that well that's the goal continuity care is to be able to have consistent care amongst the providers um, that you go to see so primary care is a great example they tend to be the triage doctor right they refer to the orthopedist or the cardiologist or the endocrinologist in an effort to get the best care for those people, right? But oftentimes what we find is that there's not always a lot of consistency of communication outside of uh, reading patient notes from other providers. I hope that makes sense. Uh, it, it does. And I think from a patient's perspective, that would matter a lot knowing that, you know, my primary care physician is talking to the specialists and everyone's kind of in communication about me uh, i would think that would be a good thing well we just just before i came in here when i finished patients up for the afternoon i had a consultation with our uh, foot surgeon as well as one of the nurse practitioners based on the medicine and the treatment pathway on one patient and it was a whole little dialogue on what's the ba- best pathway for that patient how would a patient go about you know finding situations like that because that seems like an ideal situation 
It is an ideal situation, <laughs> but and, and I think the game is changing in medicine. I think patients are seeking this, they're wanting this. I think providers, if you talk to providers, I think they want this. Yeah. Yeah, we, you know, we all kind of understand our, understand our strengths, our limitations within our given treatment modality. What happens though is, is providers get so busy that they stop being intentional about communicating. But if you create your system to where you're intent, you're, you are intentional regularly and consistently, then it's not a, oh, by the way thing. It's a, this is just part of our daily experience. I think the standard right now is almost like reactionary from a provider standpoint, because you're right, everyone's so busy, you know, and there's so many patients flooding the system that it's hard to, to be proactive uh, in a in a mm-hmm. care treatment plan, and and it seems that's kind of what Apple Healthcare has tried to implement. You know, a proactive type system. Absolutely. You know, I, I think most doctors, uh, by and far, have to just put out the fire. Mm-hmm. They can't really seek to rebuild the house or identify the foundation of issues. Or if they do, it, you know, they do over a long period of time. Well, let's get this test, and then let's get this test, and we'll schedule you back in a month to review that. And that that can keeps getting kicked down the road as to what the patient needs. Sure. And we're trying to shorten that timeline because oftentimes when patients come to us, as well with you guys, I mean, just exactly like it, performance medicine, what you'll find is that they've already been through everything else. Right. Oftentimes. Right. And so we're trying to streamline that to get people help quicker so they can be with their grandkids, so they can get out, exercise more, et cetera. A lot of thing, uh, you know, Dr. Rogers talks about is, is just having some sort of um, solution. Because a lot of times people who come see us or come see you guys, you know, they haven't found solutions yet. No mm-hmm. one's treated them. A lot of times, actually, mm-hmm. um, because they're either going um, strictly by the book in regards to lab levels you know, they feel terrible, but their lab doesn't fall within that, you know, 2% low category, so they can't get treated. And it, it, does that make sense? It does. You know, I, I think one of the things that doctors get really blamed for a lot, harped on accurately so, is that oftentimes doctors just uh, manage by the test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they look at a lab report, no, they're in range, so you're okay. Or we see an MRI finding, and oh, this is okay. You know, there's no reason for you to be hurting. And so the patient leaves, and they're often, they feel disheveled. You know, they feel like, well, I don't have an answer. It must be in my head. And like a number. And they feel like a number because the doctor only has, you know, 11.5 minutes. Right. And so that that's where I think there's a divide that's occurred a little where you have some of the docs that are just really pushing people through. And then I think you have a growing faction of doctors that are saying, no, we want to spend more time with patients to really try to get down to the root cause. And then what's helping that are these collaborative teams where you have groups of practices where you have multiple people in there that can talk. So, you know, one of the big reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast is, is for one, for you to explain kind of the evolution of your group and kind of what you where you guys are heading mm-hmm. um, because I think and you know my dad thinks like that's kind of where medicine and healthcare is heading so talk to us a little bit about you know where Apple Healthcare is going um, specifically around regenerative medicine sure you know for for years I mean you heard me say earlier all the different aspects of the body we treat and what uh, naturally occurred before was that people would go through therapies. They'd go through therapy. They'd go through 
baseline medication when they needed to, we needed to put out the fire, so to speak. Uh, things like uh, maybe steroids or maybe um, anti-inflammatories or different types of supplements to decrease inflammation along with all our physical therapy and chiropractic therapy. And when that faltered or it wasn't being successful enough, then what you found is we went into, uh, we, you know, maybe my medical providers would do an injection of cortisone into a joint. But when that started to falter, well, now we're, there was this large chasm that we found where we didn't have anything else for them. So the only thing we could do was one of two options, and that would be to send them to the orthopedist, where typically um, they're going to undergo some type of surgical intervention. And uh, that would help for a little bit, and then they'd have to go through another one. And then when that stopped helping, then it was replacement time. Hmm. And or that wouldn't help and they just have to go to a pain care clinic and we already know the detrimental effects that are happening with opioids there's a lot on that right now and so we just really saw it probably about seven years ago to identify what else is out there our podiatrist who's also a wound specialist he also he really talked about the idea of regenerative therapies with like stem cell for healing wounds and, you know, for wound care for people with like uh, diabetic ulcers and whatnot. And so we really as a group started coming together and learning. We started traveling to different centers. We started going deeper into the literature to see what works, what doesn't work. You know, what is science telling us? And there's really a lot of myths and, uh, and truths around regenerative medicine. I mean, it's arguably probably the fastest growing body of medicine right now. Oh, I would totally agree with that. Yeah, and it has its fingers in a lot of different areas. And, and so we get questions so many times daily on regenerative medicine, but it's a really wide umbrella as to what regenerative medicine represents. So in, in your opinion or, you know, based on what the research you've done, you know, what does it encompass? Like what are, what is, you know, regenerative medicine, if that's an umbrella, what's underneath that umbrella? Sure. I, I really think it depends on the category of condition you're wanting to treat because a lot of treatments are regenerative in nature. When you do, when Dr. Rogers really stabilizes um, hormones and functional medicine, what's he trying to do? He's trying to give the body the most balanced tools to regenerate itself to get rid of not only symptoms to put to add performance into their body it's allowing the body to heal itself more that is one aspect of regenerative care when you look at how physical therapists try to do that aspect where they're trying to strengthen a tissue that's been torn and injured they're trying to get the body's own regenerative processes to uh, enhance so now you get into what i think most people are thinking around regenerative medicine are things like PRP, platelet-rich plasma, prolotherapy, stem cell um, type of therapy. And those, uh, that particular um, facet of regenerative medicine is the concept of doing potent types of treatments to get the body's own stem cells, to get the body's own growth factors, to try to heal, this, uh, heal itself. It sounds, it sounds like what's happening is it's a trigger. It's something something natural that's going to trigger your own body to do what it was supposed to do originally. Essentially, that's what it is. I mean, for, stem cells have been around the science easily 50 years. Okay. 
you know, and, and it, it came out and PRP, platelet-rich plasma, has been around for many years. Prolotherapy has been around many years. But what I think science has started to do is it's started to harness how do you apply that to the body in a particular situation to find results and outcomes for a patient. And that's what people get confused by because a, a lot of patients want, for instance, stem cell. They want stem cell to be everything for all things. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's over 200,000 studies on stem cell alone, right, in the publication journals. And so a lot of people, you know, you'll see they have, may have Parkinson's and MS and other diseases where other types of specialists are, are trying to research and learn, can stem cell help that? Can these other regenerative treatments help that? We're not really doing that aspect of it. We're mainly focusing on, you know, your joints and tendons and muscle kind of issues, nerves. So, so how does that work with what you just mentioned, your joints, your muscles? How are you using or harnessing the power of stem cell, of PRP, how, how does that work? Well, basically what happens is first we have to identify what's going on with the patient. We'll okay. take a knee, for example, right? So there's a lot of conditions that can hurt, uh, you aggravate a knee. So if you're a 25, 30-year-old person and you have a knee injury and it's a simple sprain or strain, well, that person is more of a candidate for like rehabilitation therapy. Well, let's say you have you have a tear, you have a meniscus tear, you have a, a higher grade ligament tear in depending on where it is in the knee. Well, whether you're 30 or 40, 60 years of age, then our goal is to let what treatment approach from a regenerative medicine, if they've already failed conservative measures like therapy, is bet most appropriate. So each of those particular stem cell or PRP, you know, they have different reasons how we use it. And so, I mean, we can talk about those individually if you'd like. Yeah, I, I would because I, I, I kind of group them together yeah. because they're both becoming a little more mainstream at the same time, mm -hmm. maybe with PRP being a little further ahead than stem cells. Sure. Um, so, you know, for the, for the patients out there, how would you, how would you talk to them about when to use PRP versus when to maybe kind of take a step forward and say stem cell might be the answer for me? Yeah, I think that's a good question because there are clinics out there that stem cells the only thing that they'll use. Right. And, and that's a struggle for us because really in our clinic, we use stem cell. And we should probably talk about what that means, stem yeah. cell. Yeah. And, you know, but we don't do it as our mainstay. It's not our initial line of treatment. Oftentimes, we like to start with the simpler approaches, such as PRP and prolotherapy. So, so go, go through those first. So the, the simpler approaches being PRP or prolo, what are you using those for? Sure. So um, you can use PRP, and let's define what that is. PRP okay. is platelet-rich plasma. It's where we, in the appropriate candidate, where we draw your blood out and a certain amount, and then we spin it in a centrifuge a certain amount of time and at a certain speed, and then we pull the rich portion of the platelets. Platelets we all have. In our body, they help our body heal. They have tons of growth factors in it. By spinning it down, we concentrate those growth factors. Now we go into an area that we've been able to diagnose uh, either on MRI, diagnostic ultrasound, x-ray imaging, etc., where we've landed, we have a firm diagnosis. Now we have a tendon tear that's not a surgical tear, 
but it's still just equally as painful. And you'll, the medical providers will go in and they will inject under guided imagery such as uh, ultrasound, um, fluoroscopy. Um, and that's to be super specific about where it goes. Right. So the key is everything is about tissue specificity. Just because you have pain in your shoulder doesn't mean a single injection into that shoulder is going to be the only thing that helps it. You have to go right into that tissue. And remember I said we, we concentrated those growth factors. So we concentrate those growth factors, which are kind of your body's building blocks. Okay. And we inject it down into the tissue, the medical providers do, in an effort to cause it to heal, causes your body's own stem cells to start um, replicating themselves to heal the tissue. A great way to think about a stem cell is, uh, let's say- Are we, we talking about PRP or stem cell? Yeah, we, but okay. yeah, let, let me get you clarified a okay. little bit. Okay. Everything is about trying to get the body's growth factors and building blocks along with stem cells naturally in the body to uh, be produced. Gotcha. Right? Okay. So it's stimulating your body's already internal source of stem cells. Gotcha. So we have more stem cells the younger we are, and the, we have less the older we get. So PRP tries to stimulate what you already have free-floating in your body. Gotcha. So, so would that be for a less severe situation than, say, you know, actually injecting stem cells? Yeah, I really think it depends how much, um, how severe the, uh, we'll say the tear is, okay. um, or how severe the surrounding joint damage is. So if you're a person that has severe osteoarthritis, and you're a person that also has a little tearing around it, well, you may be a more of a candidate for stem cell. But let's say you're a very healthy 50-year-old person. You have your, your body has good metabolism. The hormones are regulated. It heals well. You just have a joint that you've injured from whatever prior activity. So oftentimes PRP can really be the solution to help improve your function, decrease your pain, and help, um, it helps to repair those tissues. I, I'll tell you where my, where my mind went. Um, a lot of times when, when you do hormone therapy, say you do hormones on a younger person who you still want to produce their own hormones, sure. you go about that treatment differently than you would, say, you know, a 55, 60-year-old who's probably not going to be producing his uh, own hormones, you know, for the rest of his life. Is that kind of how you're going about stem cell and PRP? Does that make any sense at it, all? It does to some degree. It really depends on some of the candidacy. You know, what, what is their, that person's particular health level? How, and how, that's not depending on age necessarily. It's not necessarily age. There are some studies that suggest that the older a person gets, that the less growth factors they have in their platelets. So some would argue that PRP, it's, it's more potent the younger you are, and there is some validity to that, just like there's some studies that suggest that females have a higher amount of growth factor in there. But if you were to talk to, you know, get our team around to you talking about success rates, we have many 75-year-olds that, you know, decided from whatever reason that, hey, I really wanted to do PRP on my knee or my shoulder, and it was really for them a game changer. Interesting. Did... Like, how did you make that decision? You know, like, how did, how did they 
figure that out? Did you know that they that they were healthy based on you know certain lab results or? It's a great that's a great question. Often it's not uncommon that we're looking at people's labs. Okay. We're looking at are they a healthy seventy five year old? Okay. Are they a seventy five year old who's unhealthy? Who's maybe a hundred pounds overweight? They may be a smoker. They may be struggling metabolically. So it's not uncommon with that group that we're trying to parallel approach them. So on one hand, we're trying to get their metabolism regulated. So that's where some of the other medical providers deal with that, with their diet and nutrition and hormones. And then at the same time, we're having to treat those that are a little more deconditioned with a higher intervention. So the healthier you are, the better PRP is going to work for you. Okay. So that leads me to stem cell. Like, is stem cell for the group who isn't as healthy, or would you still consider stem cell on a on that same healthy person? Absolutely. And, okay. you, you know, when, you, when we try to recommend to a patient, we, we think of a patient as sitting on, a, on a, a three-legged stool. Think of that. So one leg is, what does the science tell us about that condition? Okay. On the other leg, you know, what is my clinical experience, our clinical experience, tell us on how to treat that condition? And then on the third leg is what is their goals and desires for the outcome? Because they may have different barriers. They may have time as a barrier. You may find it may be a cost issue. Stem cell costs more than PRP. That's the nature. So the goal is is, is to, you, you know, Dr. Gibson, our, our podiatrist, said the other day is, you know, just because we have a shiny new hammer doesn't mean everything's a nail. And, and, and the so idea, true. And the idea really kind of comes down to where does that patient want to try to heal? How do they want to go about it? And sometimes here's what science says. That's what we tell them. Here's what our, our best a offer or number one offer on how to treat them but you always provide a patient with number two three and four and then you give you're open and honest about here's the results and expectations with that i love the the three-pronged um analogy you gave because it's so right there's so many different factors from a you know a patient's financial situation to their um say like they're in a busy time of their life and, you know, they can't have as much downtime or they're, they got to stay moving, you know, that sort of thing. Everything has to be considered. Uh, and that's why, you know, I think personalized medicine is the future and is really the current uh, because that's, that's the type of care people are expecting now. Um, I'm going to ask you about the downtime sure. because I, I'm, I'm not sure if that's a differentiator between PRP and stem cell. Is there a difference between the two? So the answer to that question is it really depends on the injury. Okay. Right. You know, you were talking about speed and, and how fast, per, you know, what's in their busy schedule. Right. Sometimes what we have to do is we have to put out the fire. And so sometimes you have to use a steroid or you have to use a non-steroidal like an ibuprofen or a leave. But there's a lot of detriment to some of those that you may want to, we can talk about yeah. if you'd like to. But when it comes to PRP or stem cell, there is, there's um, limb use downtime. You know, so we, what that means is, you know, your leg's a limb. So if we have to do something into the foot or into the Achilles tendon, you may be placed in a boot for a certain amount of time, but you're still able to walk around. If we're doing it in your shoulder, there's usually rules around that. How high can you reach? How much weight can you lift? But you're able to do your daily life. 
right? Got it. You know, I've had it all done on my knee. I had a full thickness meniscus tear because I'm a runner. And so they had to go through PRP a couple times on mine and prolotherapy uh, also on my knee. And it healed my meniscus. And now I'm back running pretty heavy. And so my downtime was pretty straightforward. It said I couldn't run you know, for a couple months okay. um, as I was going through that. But, you know, I'm on doctor, so I'm on my feet all day long. But I was able to get around and do everything I need to. I didn't have to wear a brace for this particular one. You know, does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And I, and I want to go further into the the NSAIDs. And, you know, we talked before we started recording about cortisone shots. And, you know, where I come from, you know, the tennis world, a cortisone shot is like a darn Advil sure. in, in the sense that, you know, if you have a little pain in your elbow or your knee, like the first, the go-to thing is cortisone if, if it's a, a pretty serious type of pain because you want to keep playing. Right. Um, tell us about kind of how, how, how would you go about deciding the cortisone shot route, the NSAID route versus like a, a PRP stem cell? I, I think the way, you know, the medical, my medical group talks about this is, they like to stay their hand at when do you prescribe a cortisone shot because the studies are very clear, they're irrefutable that, you know, when you stick, a, a steroid by definition is an immunosuppressant. That's how it works. It suppresses the body's immune system from creating inflammation. Well, I grew up in an era and, and those before me that said, well, we have to get rid of all inflammation. This, that, that that concept is being challenged quite a bit in the literature over the past decade. Because when you get rid of all the inflammation, you get also get rid of all those growth factors. You get rid of all those platelets. So you actually slow healing. Yes, you put out the fire and the patient feels better. But what you find is that you dehydrate the joint. You take away the good oil in the joint or in the tendon as well. And multiple steroid injections to a tendon or to an area around a tendon, what you'll find is it actually degenerates the joint. It, and it degenerates the tendon. It makes it kind of um, like gristle after a while. And so it'll actually promote tearing the more you get those. And, and so with that, that's why we really try to say, okay, how flared is this person? Is this a really severe case where you got to put out the fire, they're going out of town, they're going to be gone for three months or two months, three weeks. Where a quick fix might be, they need might that. make sense. Because the other side of that coin is, you know, when I talk to these guys is that if you don't put out the fire, and they're in Europe or they're out of town on a business trip for a few weeks and they're walking around with a bum knee or a bum foot, then people will develop other behaviors. They start limping. They start developing back issues. They stop exercising. They stop working out. When people hurt, they stop doing. And then other habits come. You know, we start eating poorly. You know, we start eating more sugars and eating wheats and all that kind of thing. And when we start eating poorly, now we have this vicious cycle. So it really comes down to where is the patient at right then as to when do you do it? Okay. And what about the NSAID route? Like, is that, are you, so you're not totally against cortisone shots. It sounds like you're okay with it on a limited basis, circumstantially. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way to say that. <laughs> and it makes it hard because people like black and white. Right. But, you know, right. people aren't black and white. NSAIDs, and definition of an NSAID is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. It's designed to help reduce inflammation, right? So most people take them orally. They are over-the-counter. Examples of that are going to be uh, Aleve, 
Um, you're going to find Advil, ibuprofen, your meloxicams by prescriptions, you know, those kinds of Celebrex, those by prescriptions, those kind of things. Those are non-steroidals. So we grew in the Army, in the military, they talk about that as ranger candy. Soldiers, when I treat soldiers, that's, they just pop them. No big deal. You know, and now what we're finding with that over the past 10 years is that the studies have clearly shown that non-steroidals slow healing. They really slow healing because they decrease the building blocks. They, we, when we take out inflammation, we can't get all those good cells to the area to repair it. So it slows the healing. And when you look at it under a scope, a microscope, you know, what you'll find is the tissue heals poorly. So it's more prone to re-injure, not to mention the kidney issues. So um, ibuprofen, Advil, Aleve works um, by aggravating the stomach because it aggravates the inner lining of the stomach, but then it'll break down the internal filtration system within the kidneys. Which is also a circumstantial decision. You know, is Mm -hmm. it a headache and you need to give a speech? You know, like there's a, a lot of different, you know, situations where you know, people are kind of willing to, to sacrifice. Yeah. So, so let's say, let's say to that, cause you know, you know, it's, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> you know, it comes down to, if you're a person and you're having terrible knee pain and you can't sleep, but you're, if you take some Advil and it allows you to sleep, well, we're going to say, take some Advil, right? Because when you sleep, you repair, you recover. So, and you re- hormone regulate. Right. And so with that being the case, That's a situation where to do it. But if you're a person that is, I'm trying to prevent my pain by taking it day after day after day because I don't want to feel anything, and then you're just waking up and taking it like candy, well, then you're not really, that's not a healthy behavior. Sure. Mm -hmm. Similar to, you know, a glass of wine a night versus four. Four, exactly. (laughs) That's really interesting. And, you know, and and I want to bring it back to, to stem cell in particular because um, that's on a lot of people's mind because sure. it's so out there. How? What are the different ways you can get stem cell? Because I know there's there's a couple different types of stem cell. Sure. And different places do different types. What's your suggestion? Uh, what's your advice for people who are kind of shopping around? No, I, I uh, you know stem cell. It's it's a broad based term. The kind of stem cell, by definition, let's talk about what just that is, okay. is a, a stem cell, by definition, in its purest form, is an undefined cell. It doesn't, know, it doesn't know what it wants to be when it grows up, right? It hasn't multiplied to decide, do I want to be a fingernail? Do I want to be a, a skin? Do I want to be hair? That's stem cell. And stem cell from like, uh, you may hear, hear, remember it from the Bush era. You know, there was Dolly the Sheep where they cloned a sheep, that's stem cell. That's really not what we're talking about. That's actually outlawed in the U.S. That's a stem cell. That's an embryo stem cell. So that's really not what we're speaking about. What we're speaking about is called a mesenchymal stem cell. That's a stem cell that has already been developed down chain. It's already gone forward and become connective tissue of some sort. Does that make sense? Yes, it's somewhat mature. It's matured. It's okay. already replicated. Okay. So it's nothing from an embryo or anything like that. There's there's a few main types of stem cells. Um, one stem cell that is not used in the U.S. anymore right now is called fat stem cell. And fat stem cell is where doctors would take it from your fat tissue and convert it over into a stem cell and inject it back in. And the FDA felt that that was... Um, making it into a drug 
by changing it. Okay. And so that's not being used. The main things that are being used now are things like an amniotic stem cell, bone marrow stem cell, and umbilical stem cell. So bone marrow stem cell has quite a bit of research behind it. Um, uh, more and more orthopedists are using that. Um, you're finding it comes from your own body. So basically what happens is that your stem cells are harvested from your pelvis. So the orthopedist or the doctor, appropriate doctor, goes in and they basically drill into your bones. They drill into your bone and through a procedure they withdraw the stem cells, withdraw the tissue out, they process it down, and then they re-inject it into the tissue, um, surrounding tissue. It, this might be a stupid statement but is that a is that a bone marrow transplant is that what that is it, it's a little different but okay. basically it's called a bone marrow aspiration okay so they're you're, taking you're bone marrow out. into yourself right so okay. so it that's exactly right so that that right there is where you're taking from yourself and putting in yourself okay so it's the same as like prp it's just a different method we're pulling blood out and taking your platelets and they're and they're putting it back into the body Gotcha. So this is taking your own stem cells and then putting it back in. There's really a strength and a weakness to it, all right? It, it definitely helps. You're using your own stem cells. The One of the weaknesses, one of the strengths, rather, is that it's your own stuff. Right. It's good. It's great. A couple weaknesses to it is that that's kind of a painful area. They're harvesting it from your, your ilium, your pelvis, and then they're putting it into your shoulder or whatnot. But you still get good results with it. But it's a little more expensive mm -hmm. because it's in dual procedures. Um, and what we're finding is that the older you get, science suggests that you're, you don't have as many stem cells. And they actually deplete. And one study I saw recently was that the amount of stem cells you have per um, uh, multiple cells in the body is one stem at 50 years of age, we'll say, is one uh, stem cell per 400,000 cells. In a 12-, 15-year-old, it's one stem cell per 12,000. You know, wow. those kind of things. So in, in a great way to really uh, think about that a little better is when you cut your cell, when you see someone who's 65 or 70 and they cut themselves versus when they were six years old and cut themselves on their skin, just a little cut, which one healed quicker? The kid. The kid. And why is that? And it's because they have that the body knows when to release stem cells into a wound and injury in order to heal it up. And so it heals it faster in that cut versus a 65-year-old. Is that similar to when an, an older person bruises? They stay bruised for a while? Is that Yeah, it's kind similar of kind idea? of thing. They don't, they, that, that age group doesn't heal as quickly. They're, the skin thins. Mm -hmm. They lose some of that subcutaneous tissue. The arteries aren't as strong. They don't have as many stem cells to go in there and heal that up. It doesn't make sense. It totally makes sense. Right. So, so... The types of stem cells that most people are doing are not from themselves. They're from the different. They're from the other sources. Really, we're seeing both bone marrow stem cells being used fairly readily. Okay. You know, it's it's a it's a pretty accepted process. Okay. Right, that kind of thing. Um, insurance covers it on some factors of wound care and whatnot. Okay. But it doesn't cover it under a lot of others. Okay. Right. So it's more of an elective use in many levels. 
Um, now you have you can run into things like amniotic and umbilical stem cells. Amniotic is a uh, harvesting procedure where um, a specialist will go into the uh, amniotic sac and pull stem cells out of it through a process, press it, process it down, and then it it goes into the doctor's clinic, and then that is injected in. There's arguments around its viability, and science is kind of wavering back and forth on it. You, The growth factors that come from it are pretty good, and a lot of people get growth factors and stem cells a little confusing. You know, growth factors are kind of your building blocks as to kind of the foreman on the job site telling things where they need to go. Stem cell is that cell that can replicate into wherever you put it. Okay. I hope so that makes sense. I think it makes sense. It's not the foreman, right? That's right. that's the growth factors. Right. The stem cells are the things that, that can reproduce themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's the part where your body is regenerating itself, essentially. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And, and that's the healing process. Right. That, that's a good healing process. When we inject, you know, our clinic injects things like PRP or um, growth factors into your tissue, not only are those that foreman is it is it building creating building blocks but it's telling your body's own circulating stem cells to multiply and heal the area did i might be remembering this wrong but prp is made up of growth factors right and and what we call cytokines exactly and that's kind of where the the difference between the two lie yeah i think so you know i mean most people that do stem cells appropriately will also have an associated growth factor with it as a stimulant or as an accelerator okay injecting um, stem cells by themselves you know what you'll find is you'll have an effect depending on how it's done but you'll find sometimes it needs a little help. It needs a driver to know. A stem cell to be viable has to be able to go into a tissue and turn into that tissue. A, a stem cell to be viable has to go to a tissue and recognize where it needs to go, and it has to be able to adhere to it. So how do you know if it can meet all of those requirements? That's where science has done. And so you heard me talk about amniotic stem cell. Well, there's been some controversy around amniotic stem cell. You know, in some independent studies, there's argument to, does the stem cell stay live? Does it stay live? Is it staying strong in that area? And there's some controversy around that. The other form of stem cell is umbilical stem cell. We tend to like umbilical stem cell quite a bit. Now, a lot of people don't understand what that means. Is umbilical stem cell is where stem cell is harvested by a medical specialist um, from consenting mothers uh, at their umbilical cord. Essentially what happens is you have participating hospitals, and then you have mothers who um, opt to donate their umbilical cord, and they have to be screened within seven days before or after. Um, their blood screened, their history screened to make sure there's no disease or no issue with that. And so then it's harvested. That goes back to an FDA-approved regulated lab process Um, The big company in the country is called Predictive. And within that, what they do is they they process it down to the exact stem cell, and there's a growth factor. They have to quarantine it to make sure there's no issue with it. Once that occurs, it's actually stored in cryo storage at, I think the last number was negative negative 180 degrees. And so that's in a nitrogen-driven uh, tank. And then it's released into our offices. So in our office, we have a big tank. 
it's nitrogen. You know, when you open it up, you have to have gloves and all the specialty procedures on how you pull it out, and um, it's thawed in a particular manner. Is there a shelf life um, between, you know, when you get it from, you know, from the umbilical cord to when it needs to be used? Or? Sure. Yeah, there's definite, there's really quite strict parameters. Okay. When it's, for instance, when, let's say you're a candidate and you're a, a person, our medical team says, hey, you, we want to use stem cell on this. Well, pretty much 10 minutes prior to the injection, the, in, the stem cell is thawed. Wow. Right. So if it's it's not like it's prepped that morning, like prepping biscuits. Right. It's basically, you know, you're sitting in the chair, you're ready. The medical team goes in and they have to thaw it a certain way. Um, pretty, And it'll thaw pretty fast. And then that's when it's placed in the syringe. And it has to be a certain um, type of needle so it doesn't hurt the stem cells. And it's not mixed with anything. It's pure, straightforward kind of things. Are the growth factors a, a part of the stem cell? Basically it, what happens is... Or are you doing like another injection? Yeah. It Well, it's not another injection. The way it is is you're, you're not allowed to mix different products and because that creates a drug so that's not that's not legal so what happens is you are able to go um, attach multiple syringes to an area and bring it into the particular area that's really interesting and you know before we end up here for the patients who are kind of going through that process of deciding what do you suggest you know I, I think it's it's clear about the umbilical form of stem cell sure. versus the other two um, how would you suggest them kind of, you know, go about talking to providers, you know, who's good versus who is not? How do you know that sort of thing? I, I think that's a really a good question. And uh, what we find is th- there's people that are promoting regenerative medicine as the end all be all for everything. You have knee pain, this is what you need. And, and that's just not accurate. And then you have other providers that really don't know anything about it. So they're immediately scared of it. They don't want you to do it. Sure. And so the key comes down to is one, research. You know, research kind of what you're thinking. Research what options do you have for your particular ailment. The other th- and then at that point, start searching providers. Who does this? Who is someone I can trust? And when you go in there, everything depends on an accurate diagnosis. So did the person appropriately examine your knee? Did they um, take appropriate imaging? Did they look at your medical history? Meaning, say you've had a knee surgery, say you've already had meniscus rehab, or you've had a meniscus repair, rather. Um, Do you have old MRIs? Did the person look at all of those to be able to come up with a good diagnosis? And then what is their recommendation? Did they give you options? Here's option A, here's option B, here's option C. And then they totally tell you all around, hey, this is what will happen if you do this. This is what you have to be careful about if you do this. You want someone that's going to sit down with you knee to knee and say, okay, I've examined you. I've looked at this. This is what medical science is telling us that is your best option. And here's why I think you need to do this. I think that's a pretty darn good how-to guide to pick any sort of healthcare provider sure. and any sort of treatment. Just right. go like looking for those key things because you know, like you said before, like you'll find people who, you know, do one thing and you know that they're going to suggest that one thing. Right. Um, speaking of that, before we get off, I, I want to make sure I get in the surgery thing. You mentioned your knee, the meniscus here. You obviously didn't opt for surgery. Sure. How, like, how do you go about that decision as a patient? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I'll give you an example this morning. I had, um, uh, I'm thinking of four patients this morning that I was performing diagnostic ultrasound to diagnose their issue. Two were shoulder, one was knee, one was an elbow. Um, the elbow person, I said, you really need a, an orthopedic surgeon to correct this. Um, the knee was, hey, you really just need to simply go through therapy. Um, the shoulder, hey, let's give you some home exercises. I think that's all you need. The other shoulder was, hey, we need to get you into the medical provider because I think you're really going to need some PRP. And, and so the, the, it, it really kind of comes down to when do you need surgery? So a lot of your audience is either going to have had a meniscus repair or they're going to, um, and they know someone. But here's the thing with meniscus repair, because I still send for those um, to the surgeons, and they're very good at them when it needs to go. Right. But literature is starting to suggest, it really, it, it, it's starting to land that meniscus repair in 20, 25-year studies has the same outcome if you didn't do it at all. And so for us, really comes down to, if let's say there's a part of the meniscus breaks off inside the joint or it's such severe pain that there's a particular type of tear in there, the only thing the surgeon can do is go in and clean it out. But if it's just meniscus, a mild tear, or a simple tear, it's stable, you don't necessarily need the surgery. And this is where you're seeing a lot of methods that I grew up and a lot of my peer group grew up as, well, this is what you do. Meniscus repair equals surgery. Well, now that's being challenged as to that what do you mean by stable because that i took that as a big deal like if you're stable if you can still walk you know that sort right. of thing what do you mean by that yeah when when a joint is stable it means that it's functioning properly it's moving properly it doesn't feel like it wants to give out when uh, a surgeon a quality surgeon goes in and repairs a meniscus what you'll find is when they repair it, it, it's oftentimes cleaning some of the good stuff out too to make it smooth. And so what you'll find is once they clean that out, well, you're also taking away some of its protective mechanism. And so now it's not uncommon in our clinic that, you know, we, we and this is one reason we got into this. We would send someone for meniscus surgery because that was our protocol. They faltered in therapy. It didn't heal. Um, standard med medicinal measures didn't heal. Now, you know what? All we have is surgery. So we'd send them for surgery. And then a year and a half later, we'd re-MRI them because they're back in our clinic hurting. And now they have both meniscus are torn again. So, you know, then what did we do back then? Well, we couldn't do anything. They weren't healing in therapy. So we'd send them back to the surgery. And so they'd have so a then surgery. then you're talking about multiple surgeries back-to-back -back years absolutely so and 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 that was in it was just kind of a frustrating thing for us um and so then now we'll see people that were doing these different treatment options and they're not necessarily having to go through surgery not saying all of them don't need to because some of them absolutely do sure but a vast majority are healing with these processes i like i like the at least the philosophy of as a, from a patient's perspective let's explore the options, <laughs> yeah. you know, let's see if there are good alternatives. Mm -hmm. um, anything to, to not use a knife, w I think would be a, a healthy thing to do. Well, in most of my surgeon buddies will tell, they like the referrals we send because once they get to them, they know they've done everything. And the results are going to be better. And their result, they want, and, and the surgeons really do want outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're really, they're, they're, they've improved in their best practices and their standards of care, and they really do want high outcomes. Dr. Cole Hosenfeld, this has been a pleasure. 
Thank you. Will, will you tell everybody where they can find you? Uh, you got multiple practices. Kind of tell us how to find you on social as well as your brick and mortar. Sure. You know, our, our website is applehealthcaregroup.com. Our phone number is 865-524-1234. You're the man. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you, Dr. Cole. All righty. You're welcome.